Uh, indeed, well, good morning. Um, if I haven't met you, Good morning. Um, so as Pastor Calvin said, my name is Justin and I serve at the, um, at the main site in Carmel. I work with the youth and the children, uh, sorry, youth and the English ministry. And I was walking around my neighborhood recently and less than a week ago was Halloween. And I noticed the decorations and I was thinking how odd these decorations must be to an outsider. Like if you didn't grow up celebrating Halloween and you walk around your neighborhood and you see things, it, they just must seem very odd. For example, some of the things I saw were, for example, at least in our neighborhood, people like to put skeletons all over the place. It just seems odd that you put skeletons around your front yard um, and they go next level. Some people not only put skeletons in the front yard to observe Halloween, but they have skeletons uh, climbing up the walls of their uh, abode and their house, which seems odd. And not only do they have skeletons of humans, uh, some people even have skeletons of non-humans as well, which just must seem kind of odd. Like, why would you spend money to buy skeletons and, and decorate your lawn with all of these skeletons? Some people with human skeletons, other people with dog skeletons. Uh, but even beyond that, some people like to uh, put tombstones in their front lawn. So they turn their front lawn into a, a graveyard, which again, if you didn't grow up Celebrating this, this must seem very odd. But not only do people sometimes celebrate with graveyards, but they also like put ghosts everywhere. There's, there's ghosts hanging from the trees. There's monsters. It's just kind of a dark season, which seems very odd. Again, if you didn't grow up celebrating this or even observing it or being familiar with it, Halloween must just seem very odd and very dark that people would have all this very kind of sometimes gruesome, gory stuff celebrating death. And on top of all that, uh, the centerpiece of, of Halloween so often is, is kids are kind of getting into this and everything. It just must seem very odd. Today, as we look at our text in Ezekiel 22, this text might seem equally rather mm, dark and very odd to you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, if you didn't grow up with the Bible, maybe if you did as well, nonetheless, this text in Ezekiel 22 might seem very dark. And you're like, wow, why are we talking about that? There's kids in the room too, as well. And so it just seems maybe a bit odd. But as we walk through Ezekiel 22, yes, it is pretty dark. There's some stuff in here that is just like, wow. There's also going to be a glimmer of hope towards the end. So what I want to do is walk through Ezekiel 22 with you. And as we do, we're going to leave four truths about sin. So four truths about sin as we walk through Ezekiel chapter 22. I'm going to begin by reading Ezekiel 22, just the first few verses, Ezekiel 22, verses 1 to 5. I invite you to follow along in your Bible. So Ezekiel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, will you judge her? Will you judge the city of bloodshed? Then confront her with all her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, your city, you, you city that brings on herself doom by shedding blood in her midst and defiles herself by making idols, you have become guilty because of the blood you have shed and have become defiled by the idols you have made. 
You've brought your days to a close, and the end of your years has come. Therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations, and a laughing stock to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far away will mock you, you infamous city full of turmoil. So the first characteristic that we see about sin here in these opening verses, well, excuse me, this first characteristic that we see here is this idea that sin is uh, the direction of sin. And specifically, you see in this text that the sin is both horizontal, that is against other people, but sin is also vertical against God. So horizontal is against other people, but vertical is against God as well. Did you hear it in the text? Both aspects of sin, that horizontal aspect against other people, but also that vertical aspect against God. Let me show it to you. In verse 3, you city that brings on herself doom by shedding blood in her midst. That's, that's Sin is shedding blood against other people, maybe murdering other people. That's horizontal. But also, the, the indictment here is sin that's also vertical. You also defile yourself, the text says, by making idols. That's, that's vertical. So as the text opens, you see the direction of sin. It's, it's, vert, it's horizontal against other people, shedding blood. But it's also vertical, making idols. Or for example, in the next verse, same thing. You've been guilty because what? The blood you have shed, that, that's a horizontal sin. Shedding other people's blood, murder, it's horizontal. But then he reiterates, but you've become defiled by the idols that you have made. That's vertical. And what's really kind of sad is that some suggest that what is being indicted here are not two different sins, but the same, specifically in child sacrifice. That is, that, that there would be some false religions that part of that religion is you would sacrifice a child as an offering to your God. So in that, you see the combination very sadly and clearly of Horizontal sin. You're murdering someone else. You're murdering a human. But you're doing it to worship your false god, which is blasphemous. So sin is both horizontal and vertical. For example, do you remember in Psalm 51? In Psalm 51, the, the opening subscript, in which tells about what the psalm is, says this. A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do you remember this? In Psalm 51, this psalm is about what happens after David commits adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. So there's this aspect in which the psalm is about horizontal sin. He commits adultery. But then when you get to verse 4, David says this. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Speaking of God. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In Psalm 51, you have this combination that we saw earlier. Sin is both horizontal. It's about when he sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery with her. And yet David says, I've sinned against you, Lord. So sin is both horizontal and vertical. It's against other people and ultimately against God. Or think about this. Why is murder wrong? Well, in the opening book in the Bible, in Genesis 9, find out that whoever sheds human blood, a human shall their blood be, by human shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, the horizontal and the vertical are connected. Do you see this? Why is it so wrong to murder someone? That's a horizontal sin, right? Well, yeah, but it's, it's wrong because that person is made in the image of God. It's an offense to God because you're, you're taking the life of someone that is made in his image. 
the murder in and of itself, you see this aspect in which sin is both horizontal. You murder someone else, but it's an affront to God because that person is made in the image of God. Sin is both horizontal and vertical. One more example, kind of a, a negative example or a reverse example. Do you remember when, when Jesus says, is asked the question, what's the greatest law? What, what do I do? Jesus weds together the horizontal and the vertical. Obedience, he says, is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's vertical. But also loving your neighbor as yourself. And so for Jesus, the horizontal and the vertical are tied together. I can't say I love God and hate my fellow human. Again, it's kind of a flip. Sin is both horizontal and vertical. You see that in the opening verses in Ezekiel 22. As you continue to think about those opening verses, you also see the source of sin. Let's go back to verse 3. Where does this sin come from? Like, people of God are sitting. How does this happen? Well, God says, you city that brings on herself doom by shedding blood, etc. Or in verse 4, you have brought your days to a close. The source of sin is ourselves. Sin is our own doing. We are responsible for our sin. And the text makes it clear. You brought this on yourself, Jerusalem. This is your own doing. And, and so, we are responsible for our sin. We cannot scapegoat or blame other people for our sin. You're responsible. I'm responsible for my sin. Do you remember in some of the opening verses in the Bible? When Adam and Eve sin and God calls them to account for it. Do you remember what happens? God says to Adam, Hey, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? And listen to how Adam responds. And ask yourself this question. Who's Adam blaming here? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she made me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Do you see her? Who's Adam blaming here? Well, the woman, yes. But the, not just the woman here with me, but rather the woman you put here with me. There's this picture of Adam trying to scapegoat not only Eve, but God himself. God, this is kind of your doing. I mean, you put her here with me. This is your fault. What, is the, what, is the, what does Eve do? What does, the, what does the woman do? The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Serpent deceived me. And I, she scapegoats. She tries to, to pass the buck. She tries to blame someone else as well. We love to scapegoat. We love to blame other people for our sin. It wasn't really my fault. You know, she was mean to me, therefore I acted this way. He said this, and therefore I did this. Ezekiel 22 and other places in Scripture remind us, no, no, no. It's on you. Specifically, in the New Testament, the New Testament hyperlocates or really focuses in on the source of sin. James, the New Testament, writes this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It's your own heart, James says. You can't. Certainly, it's an environment that plays, the play, plays a factor in it. Ultimately, James says, no, it's on you. It's your heart. How do I know it's in my heart, you might think? Well, Jesus gives a helpful diagnostic. Jesus says this. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So check this out. What's in your heart? Listen to what you say. 
next time you have a fight with your spouse, fight with your teenage uh, son or daughter, there's conflict because there's something you're not getting within your own heart. And you're like, well, what's in my heart? Listen to what you say. Listen to the words you spout. It's all within us. The source of sin in Ezekiel 22, it's on you, Jerusalem, God says. And the rest of scripture testifies, hey, it's my doing. It's my sin. This is challenging. I mean, this is a very difficult chapter. Even, and we're not even, we're about halfway through. Think about the direction of sin. It's horizontal. It's vertical. Think about the source of sin. We're responsible for our own sin. Like, it's on me. It's my heart. When I do premarital counseling, I'll sit with the couple and we'll talk about a variety of things. And at the beginning of every time we, we chat, we do some scripture study. And one of the studies that we'll do working through premarital counseling is something along the lines of, hey, the heart is deceptive. You know, sin comes from our own heart. Our, our natural bent is towards sin. And if you're married, it's probably pretty helpful because when you find that out pretty, pretty quickly in marriage, that you're sinful. And you, there's two sinners getting married here and you, and you fight this conflict and all that. So I bring that up in parable counseling for that reason. But here's the challenging part. I'll ask couples, hey, what do you think of this? And it's kind of 50-50. Half of the couples are like, okay, I can see that. Our, our hearts are sinful. Sin's a real thing. But some couples are like, ooh, that's pretty dark. I don't know. And maybe it's because they're, they're premarital. They're very excited about getting married. They maybe have rose-colored glasses and everything's happy in the world. But maybe this is challenging for you. This idea that sin is within our own hearts. That sin is vertical and horizontal. And you're like, yo, this is pretty dark. Well, it actually gets darker. So let's keep going. So third characteristic of sin is the forgetfulness of sin. Take a look at the text here if you have a Bible. Verses 6 and following. Let me read verses uh, 6 and 7. And you'll hear, again, horizontal sin, sin against other people. But you'll also hear vertical sin, sins against God. Pick it up in verse 6. See how each of the princes of Israelites who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you, they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you, they've oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and desecrated my Sabbaths. Pause there. So you hear that horizontal, verse 6, they're shedding blood. Verse 7, they're treating father and mother with contempt. Verse 7, they're oppressing the foreigner, mistreating the fatherless and the widow. In verse 8, you've despised my holy things, desecrated my Sabbath. So there's that kind of that vertical reality there. They're hurting other people. They're, they're not worshiping God as he calls forth. Then jot, drop down to verse 12. Kind of a summary here. This goes on, but look at this, perhaps the summary, verse 12. In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make a profit from the poor. You exhort, extort rather, unjust gain from your neighbors. And here it is. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord, the sovereign Lord. Sin is forgetfulness of God. Sin is ignoring God. Sin is downplaying God. We see this again from the very beginning. Think back to Genesis 3. What is the serpent's strategy to entice Adam and Eve to sin? The serpent chips away at the idea of God being judge. Go back. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Did you hear a strategy? You're not going to die. Even though God said you're going to die in chapter 2, you're not going to die. So if the serpent can chip away at the idea that God's, God is judged, that there's consequences for your sin, you're not going to die. That then leads to falling into sin. When we forget God, when we ignore God, when we downplay that God is actually the God of all creation, that God has the right to rule and reign over everyone and everything, that God is the judge, then of course you're going to fall into sin easier. There's no consequences. You see this in Psalm 10. In Psalm 10, there's this picture of this wicked person. And listen to how the, the, the psalmist portrays how this wicked person can fall into sin so easily. Psalm 10. In arrogance, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. Verse 10. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, here's his. Here's how the wicked guy can, can, can keep going on with this. God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. The psalmist says, Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? You see? In verse in Psalm 10, the, the wicked man is able to do all of this because he's like, God doesn't care. God doesn't see what I'm doing. He won't call me to account. It's the same strategy you saw in Genesis 3. You will not surely die. God won't judge you. There's no accountability here. It's the same thing we saw in Ezekiel 22:12. They sin because they're forgetting God. They're ignoring God. They're downplaying God. Within this biblical framework, think about it. Forgetting God helps lubricate the gears of sin. If I don't give account to God, then I'm good. He won't judge me. He won't call me to account. But what makes this worse is that this sin has infiltrated every strata of society. The fourth and final characteristic of sin is the prevalence of sin. That is the idea that sin is just all over the place. And listen to how this is set forth in Ezekiel 22. I'm going to read excerpts from 25, 26, 27, 28, and you'll hear how the indictment is against all different types of people. Look at the text with me. 25. There is a conspiracy of her princes within her. Verse 26. Her priests do violence to my law. Verse 27. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. Verse 28. Her prophets, the prophets of the land, practice extortion and commit robbery. And then verse 29. Excuse me. Verse 28. Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions. Then verse 29, the people of the land practiced extortion and commit robbery. Did you hear it? All different levels of sin, all different levels of society are infiltrated by sin. Verse 25, princes. Verse 26, priests. Verse 27, officials. Verse 27, prophets. And therefore, understandably, verse 29, the people themselves have fallen into sin here. It's kind of cascading effect of, of the leadership leading the people astray here. Sin affects all sections, all strata, all segments of society, even the religious. Do you notice that? Even the priests here fall into sin, which is not surprising. If you know the New Testament, 
Some of Jesus' strongest words are against religious leaders, which should give us a pause, right? Even if you're a religious person, you go to church on Sunday morning, watch out. You too may fall into sin. So we've walked through a lot of the, of the, of the chapter here, and we're left longing for a better leader because we just saw the princes fall into sin, the prophets, the officials, everyone's falling into sin. And you're left, it's a very dark chapter, right? You're left walking through this chapter thinking, oh, if only there were a better leader that would help these people. There's a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 30. Against the bleak black backdrop of this chapter, which is sin after sin after sin, look what happens in verse 30. A glimmer of hope. Check this out. Verse 30. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. This is picture. He's looking for someone to stand in the gap, someone to build a wall to shield the people from the wrath of God. We're hopeful, right? He's looking for someone. Just, just someone to help these people out, to shield them, to lead them well. But look what happens at the end of verse 30. But I found no one. And then the, the judgment continues. Verse 31. So, because no one was found, verse 31, I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So you walk through this chapter and it's super dark and it might seem like, wow, this is such a depressing chapter. God's people just sin in all these different ways. And it's all parts of society. And then there's this glimmer of hope. You're like, oh, would there be someone that can stand in the gap? Someone that can shield them from the wrath of God? And then you find out there's no one. No one. But that glimmer of hope is fanned into a blazing fire in the person of Jesus. Because verse 30 reminds that no one was found, but therefore God then takes on himself that duty. And he enters time, space, and history in Jesus. He takes on flesh, and he, in Jesus, becomes the one who stands in the gap and does for us that, what no one else could do. No one else was found that would be able to shield God's people. But Jesus comes into time, space, and history, and he's the one that can shield us from God's wrath. He bears our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He's consumed by the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus dies so that we can have life. So, let's draw this together. I mean, this is a challenging chapter. It's a very dark chapter. So much sin, so much darkness. So what do we do with this? I think the first aspect is that we ought not read this only as an indictment of other people's sins. Don't read this like, oh, those people back then, they were so messed up. Hey, let God use this text to, to lovingly prick at your own heart. As we saw, sin is horizontal and vertical. Sin is something that's really in our own hearts. Yes, even in our own hearts today. That so often we are tempted to downplay, forget, or ignore God, and therefore 
rationalize or justify our own sin. That no matter your status in society, even if you're a religious person, sin is crouching at your door waiting to consume you. But as you let this text kind of fly into your heart, would you, yes, feel that, that the, the depth of sin, but also would, it, would you receive it as a gift? And what I mean by that is this, that God wants to deal with your sin. God wants to reveal sin that's in your own heart. And that's a gift. It may not feel like a gift, but it's a gift. Because as one author said, sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one that you're most defensive about. In other words, for all of us, there's, there's some type of sin that's in our heart that we love so much and that as God is trying to, even this morning, prick your heart and, and help, help bring you to life, to free you from that destructive sin, the sin that really destroys us the most are the ones we're most defensive about. So think about this. Even as we're reading this text, you're having conversations with people around you, what are the sins that you're most defensive about? Watch out. That could be the sin that is most destructive in your life. Oh, she's only a friend. You spend too much time with her, not with your spouse. I know we have lunches together a lot. She's only a friend. Nothing's going on there. Not everybody pays taxes. I mean, it's totally fine to shade some stuff here. What are the sins that you're most defensive about? The sins that when people bring it up or when God through his word pricks your heart, you're like, well, it doesn't apply to me. The most destructive. And God is bringing it up so that you would have life, so that you would be freed from the death inducing grip of that sin. So, my prayer is that in part, God would use this text that's so dark about sin, yes, to reveal sin in your heart, but not just to prick you, but ultimately to bring redemption, to draw you again, or maybe for the first time, to Jesus. Remember verse 30. That glimmer of hope as you walk through this text is so dark. It's so difficult. And is there anyone that can stand in the gap? And here in verse 30, no. But now, this side of the cross, we know, yes, there is one that can stand in the gap, and he did. God took it upon himself in Christ to bear the weight of our sin on the cross. So when God convicts you of sin, he doesn't do it to, to destroy you, but rather to bring you life, to bring redemption, to bring forgiveness so that that weight of sin on your back could be thrown off. So as he reveals sin in your heart, may, may, he, may he bring redemption as you look to Jesus again, as you look to him as the one who stands in the gap, as you look to him who is the rock and the redeemer. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, open our eyes, yes, to the severity and depth of sin even through this chapter, which is so dark, which has sin oozing everywhere, which is so difficult to hear. But Lord, would you, by your grace, prick our hearts to see sin with open eyes, not just sin out there, but even sin within our own hearts. But as you do that, would you remind us that you do that to bring us life? Because there is one who can stand in the gap for us, one who has stood in the gap for us, namely Jesus you came and stood in the gap through your son. So therefore, when we see sin, when we're convicted by sin, you do it to redeem us, to bring us to new life and to new hope and to bring us forgiveness. Because ultimately, you are rock and you are redeemer. So Father, would you, through your spirit and by your grace, prick our hearts of sin, but then also open our eyes to the hope, the light, and the joy that is found in you and uniquely in you. 
because you, through Jesus, have stood in the gap. You uniquely are a rock. Help us to rest in you, delight in you, and rejoice in you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you very much for Pastor Justin for the good, good preaching. We wish Pastor Justin have a blessed sabbatic in the upcoming half a year. And actually, sin is not only horizontal, but also vertical. Only Jesus can redeem our sin. And only Jesus can bring love to fill in our heart. So love is not only horizontal, but also vertical. 那我们一起起来，我们一起来唱回应诗歌